our scripture reading today is from the book of Acts. We're going to begin with Acts 9, verses 22 through 30, and then move on to Acts 11, verses 23 to 26. Um, in addition to your own Bible, you will find this written on the back page of your message notes. Or if you have a worship Bible, it starts on page 785. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them and spoke, <clears throat> excuse me, so he went in and out among them in Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord, and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. But they were seeking to kill him, and when his brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Now on to Acts 11. When Barnabas came to Antioch and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted with them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great new many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were the first called Christians. Thank you. You know, I was 17 years old, if you can imagine this, when I got my very first ministerial license. I actually have been licensed as a minister since I was 17 years old. Uh, it was already clear to me way back then that I believed God had called me to some kind of vocational ministry. I loved playing sports in high school and playing in the band and all those sorts of things, but I'd always loved the Word of God, and I loved the change that it made in people's lives. And as a part of an active youth group, I just wanted to follow God, and it seemed like God was calling me into ministry. So from that point on until today, I have essentially been involved nonstop in ministry of one sort or another. That means that I've been involved in ministry for over 37 years. That's, wow, that's scary old, isn't it? Yeah. That's a long time. Having said that, I just want to say something to all of you personally. I want you to know that the last two years of being a part of this church family have probably given me more joy and fulfillment and fun in ministry than I've had probably for the whole 37-year period of time. I have been enjoying being a part of this church family more than any time that I can ever remember. I've always enjoyed being a pastor, so don't get me wrong. I've always loved it. This is what I know I was just made to do. But as you might know, there are some seasons of ministry which are more fulfilling and more fruitful and, and more fun than others. And I just have been feeling so much like... Uh, uh, God has been working in our church family and giving me the opportunity to sort of share the ride with you like a surfer on the way that God is moving. And some of you have been enjoying and being a part of that and growing with me of that. Often, as you might realize, uh, ministry feels a little bit more like uh, uh, rowing a sailboat in a dead calm. You know, I'm not a sailor, but my dad was. You know, when you get out there on the wind, on the waves, you need the wind to move or else if you're going to move, it's all up to you. 
And I know if you've been involved in any kind of work for uh, the ministry of any kind, you know that sometimes it can feel like you're just pushing uphill. You're just making things go. It's like, Lord, here's the Lord blowing the Spirit among us today, the wind blowing everything uh, for us. That's one thing that we enjoy about being out of doors, but it can make my life a little interesting as things blow in front of me. But oftentimes ministry feels like you're just working so hard to accomplish, and it's like you're doing everything. It's like, God, where are you? I'm trying to be faithful. You know what I'm saying, right? Yeah, I've tried to be faithful in preaching and serving and leading, but sometimes there's just not much tangible evidence of God's breath of His Spirit blowing. But our experience here at the Church at the Chip has been entirely different than that. It's been clear right from the very beginning in that very first Bible study that I sat in with Brian and Michelle and a few others, and I said to them, I think I'd like to start a church. I was scared to death to say it. And where are you, Brian? There, You remember that, yeah? And they said, let's do it, you know? And then soon enough, the word kind of got out, and very early in that, Kim and Janice said, we'll be involved. And then uh, Steve and Janice Light said, we'll be involved. And so we had about eight or ten people who said, let's do this thing. That's kind of how we got this thing going. And right from the very beginning, it has seemed like God has been just opening doors, or maybe we'd say, filling our sails ever since we got going. Whether it is the opportunity that was given to us to meet here at the Buffalo Chip, or the coverage we've received from various media outlets, or our rapid growth as more and more people have come to think of us as their church home. There's been no doubt in my mind that God's blessing is on our church family. No doubt in my mind that this is something which was born not in the heart of some broken-down preacher, but in the heart of God that He wants to see a church family indigenous to the life of Cave Creek, serving here in this community, and there's no more indigenous way to do church than to have it at a saloon with cowboy hats here in our beloved town. Yes, it's been great to see that, and I want you to know that I am so deeply grateful, as God is my witness, to be your pastor. I'm so deeply grateful to be able to serve here There were many times in the years preceding the start of this church that I doubted I'd ever have the opportunity again to lead a local church family. To be involved in ministry, yes, but to provide leadership in the teaching ministry for a local church family, it was looking as though that wave had passed me by. And I am so thankful to be able to be your pastor. It's an honor, and I mean that sincerely, to serve you and to be a part of this church family. I thank God for you. You see, our church is the fulfillment of a lifelong passion for me. It's a dream which has followed a pattern typical of many visions in the Bible. Uh, When we look at the, last week when we began to take a look at the making of a biblical vision, that's at the front part of your notes, the making of a a biblical vision, we saw that God often has a strange way of working in our lives. He often gives us dreams only to apparently put them away and shove them back in the back, uh, put them out of commission for many long period of time. Because you see, the vision to start a church was planted in my heart deeply when I was 29 years old. And yet it was, did not become a reality until 25, nearly 25 years later. Often when God works in the making of a biblical vision, we have the birth of a vision, the death of a vision, and the rebirth of a vision. We saw that some last week, and it was certainly true in my life. But it was also true for Abraham in the Bible. Abraham had the vision to become a great nation, but it was limited, wasn't it, by his childlessness until God miraculously gave him a child and a family through him. 
It was also true for Joseph. His vision to save his family seemed like a pipe dream when he was sold into slavery. But God miraculously made his dreams come true, even though it meant going to slavery in Egypt and being cast out from his family. It was not only true for Abraham and Joseph, but it was also true for Moses. His vision to rescue his people seemed to die in the deserts of Midian until God called him 40 years later to fulfill that vision and to lead his people from slavery into freedom, out of Egypt, into the promised land. It was true for Abraham, for Joseph, and for Moses, and also even for Peter in the New Testament. His vision to become the rock upon which the church would be built came crumbling down when he denied that he knew Jesus shortly after assuring him he could count on him. That vision came crumbling down, and he lost everything he'd built his life upon. But after Jesus' resurrection, Jesus once again called Peter, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. And it was true for Paul in the text which Cheryl just read for you. We learn that all Paul, although his first attempts to preach were rather disastrous, 14 years later, God used Barnabas to recruit Saul, who became Paul, to join him in the exciting ministry that was taking place in Antioch. Perhaps you caught that. You see, and uh, if you know the story, Paul had been a devout um, a Jewish leader, thinking that the church, was, uh, the Christians were, uh, impo- Jesus was an imposter and that Christians were deceived. He was on his way to capture Christians when Jesus appeared to him in a vision at Damascus, and he became a follower of Jesus that day. But his first three years were spent without much success. He ran out of Damascus, and then he was run out of basically of, out of Jerusalem, sent off to Tarsus, and somewhere between 14 and 17 years went by from the time he first had the vision to be the apostle of the Gentiles until the time it came to fruition. And it wasn't even Paul's initiative that made it happen to begin with. It was his good friend Barnabas, who when he went up to Antioch and saw this church filled with all different ethnic groups and not, Jewish of, uh, not of Jewish origin, he thought about it and he said, this is exactly the vision my brother Saul had years ago. Where is he? i got to go find him. And he goes up to Tarsus and he brings Saul over there. And he says, Saul, we got to teach these guys. And they did. And from there on, Saul never looked back. See, there was the birth and the death and the rebirth of a vision. Yes. Uh, we, why is it often, we might ask, as we think about this this morning, that visions often follow this pattern? Why must there be death before there is, again, rebirth? Why does God give us a vision only to seemingly snatch it away? Uh, and how can we become the kind of people that God can trust to carry out His vision for our future? These are some of the questions we'll look at this morning as we consider not the making of a a biblical vision, but the making of a biblical visionary. What is it that God wants to do in your heart and in mine so that we can become the kind of people who can do the things that we long to do and love to do in our lives? Why is it that this happens? Well, one of the main reasons, I think, why visions can take such a circuitous route in our lives as they have for me is that we've got a lot of rough edges, a lot of uh, rough edges that God needs to smooth out in our lives. We need to learn to become the kind of people who are carrying out the vision that God has for us. So with that in mind, let's take a closer look at this passage and this little photograph from Paul's early Christian experience and ask the question, how did God shape him 
into the man who was capable of achieving the great dreams that God had placed in his heart. And by extension then, how can we become the kind of person that God can trust with something great and meaningful and significant with our lives? But there are only hints in this text, but I think they are very suggestive and powerful for us, and I've certainly seen them happen this way in my own life. The making of a biblical visionary involves about four different components as found in this text. We can look at the other people in Scripture as well, but in the, since we're studying the book of Acts together, let's take a look at Saul. And how is it that he who became a Christian at one point during that 14-year period of time was able to somehow be ready to accomplish what God had for him? How does God work in our lives to prepare us for the work He's called us to do? There are four things that God uses, and I would put them down for you. You can put them down in your notes. The first one that we see is this. The first thing that happened for Saul was that Saul had a personal encounter with the risen Christ. We might call this at the heading, Revelation. Revelation. The apostle Paul, his name was Saul, but he began to be called the apostle Paul later, was on his merry way doing the best he could to honor God as best he knew how to do it, when suddenly much to his surprise, and I would say even dismay, Jesus showed up, and he had a personal encounter with the risen Christ. And his life was never the same again. He was able to make a huge difference according to God's vision in his life because one day he had a vision of Jesus. He saw the living, resurrected Christ, and that utterly changed his life. And if you and I want to achieve the, the, the vision and the goals that God has for us, we too need a personal encounter with the risen Christ. Because He is not dead, He's living again. We can experience Him ourselves. And in fact, unless we do, our vision will die along the wayside. It'll simply be a pipe dream. The Apostle Paul had an encounter with the living Christ, and he's not the only one. We see it, for example, with Peter. Remember Peter? He was out after Jesus was raised from the dead. He went off fishing, and the Lord had a specific role for him and encountered him by the Sea of Galilee and said, I want you to feed my sheep. And he was never the same again once Jesus had reappeared to him. And Moses, it wasn't an encounter with Christ because this was before Jesus was here, but it, Moses, by the burning bush, was doing, minding his own business. And one day, God showed up to him. And his life was never the same because God had, had showed up in, in, the person of that, uh, in the shape of that burning bush. And then, of course, there was Abraham who was called by God. So the very first thing that needs to happen if we are to become the people God wants us to become is we need to have a personal encounter with Jesus. This is so important because there are so many people in our world who know about Jesus. They know things about Jesus. They can discuss Jesus, but have they ever, through the eyes of faith, seen Jesus himself? Is Jesus a living personal reality for them? If you've never experienced a personal encounter with Jesus, this is where you must begin. For the Christian message is about a living, resurrected Jesus, a Jesus whom we can know, just like the apostle Paul did. He said in a letter to the Philippians a little bit later in his ministry, I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ. You know, my dad passed away a year ago, and, and I discovered that his favorite hymn, was uh, a, a hymn we used to sing in our church called, I, we called it, I Shall Know Him. I Shall Know Him. And it went like this. When my life's work is ended and I cross the swelling tide in the bright and glorious morning I shall see, 
I shall know my Redeemer when I reach the other side, and his smile will be the first to welcome me. I shall know him. I shall know him. As redeemed by his side, I shall stand. I shall know him. I shall know him by the print of the nails in his hand. Yes. Do you have this deep abiding sense of an experience with God? Have you seen that Jesus is not just a subject that we study, but he's a person who's living and who wants to live within our lives as we place our faith in him? How can we know him? Number one, by understanding the truth about him, and number two, by placing our trust in him. What is the truth about Jesus? Well, it was the truth that the Apostle Paul needed to learn. He thought Jesus was a teacher who taught about God, but what he discovered that Jesus was God in the flesh. It was an amazing thing. He was unlike any other person in all of history, unlike Moses. Oh, I've got some competition today. It's like we're by a train station today, huh? It's okay. Uh, like, unlike Moses or Abraham or all these great leaders in his historical faith, Jesus was God in the flesh. He wasn't just a prophet. He wasn't just a great teacher. He was God in the flesh. We have to understand the truth about him, that Jesus came and gave his life for us so that we could have forgiveness for our sins and the hope of eternal life with him to make us part of his family. And then we need to respond by placing our trust in him. The apostle Paul had experienced that when he was on his way to Damascus. You see, once you've had a personal encounter with Jesus, you can never walk away from him. You just can't do it. You can get mad at him. You can get angry with him. You can, you can uh, give him the silent treatment. You can do all that stuff, but it's always him you're working with. You can tell it's him. You can't leave him. Like Peter, one time Jesus said to them, will you all go away? And Peter said to him, Lord, where should we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. You know, he didn't understand it, but he couldn't help but love him. Yes. If we do not have a life and changing encounter with the person of Jesus, we will be forever at the sway of changing circumstances. And we are so much that way. But if we have an encounter with Christ, we know that he can be counted on. Okay, that's the first thing, revelation, a personal encounter with the risen Christ. Second thing we see from the Apostle Paul, and this is very difficult but very important, it is failure. Failure, yes. Failure is good for you. I know you don't like it. I don't like it any better than you do. But failure is sometimes the best thing that ever happens to you. Failure, and I say it this way, failure, a personal experience of the strength of Christ because it's when we fail that we can then experience God's strength. You know, it's very common for people who follow Jesus to be failures. And the Apostle Paul experienced that, as I already suggested to you. It seems to me that by and large he was a failure in Damascus and he'd been a failure in Jerusalem. He became a success in Antioch, but his failures were part of what made him an ultimate success. You and I, well, I should say for myself, I hate failure. I'm embarrassed by failure. I want to stay away from failure. I don't want to be anywhere near failure, and I don't like it when it happens to me, but it has happened to me, and it's the good thing for me that it has happened. But the apostle Paul wasn't the only one. What about Moses? Even though he had a vision to deliver the people, what did he do? He killed an Egyptian and ran away. It was failure. Or about Abraham, who had the vision of becoming a great nation. What did he do? Well, he made the mistake of having a baby by his slave maiden, Hagar. And it was a big mistake. Um, he had failed to trust God. And how about Peter? 
who failed in the very terrible way, moments, it seems, after promising him he could count on him, he, in fact, denies that he ever knows him. And these failures are so important. One of the reasons we need time for our visions to develop is we need to go through a growing experience, you know. Uh, uh, the, uh, uh, yeah. Got to learn how to fail. In fact, I can't help but thinking about baseball now that the season's off and over. Baseball is a game of learning how to deal with failure. You got to be able to take your swings. You got to learn. You got to learn out of your bad habits. Yeah. And the Apostle Paul very definitely was a failure. He, in two ways in particular. One, he was a failure by his persecution of the church. He had been a persecutor of the church. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 59, he said, or 15 verse 9, he said, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Paul never got over the fact that he had been persecuting the very church that Jesus had come to create. It always broke his heart to remember that. Didn't stop him from moving forward but it broke his heart to remember that. But there's a failure that's talked about here in this story. If you, re- if you listened as Cheryl read it for you, the apostle, the, we see that the Apostle Paul had been in Damascus, and he was let down out of a basket. Listen to the story uh, a, a little bit here. Um, when many days passed, this is verse 23 and following, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But the disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Now, that seems a little bit innocuous to us, but it was not apparently innocuous to Paul. We think he escaped out of Damascus. But I believe this was a deeply humiliating failure in his life. For example, he speaks of it later in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 30. He says this when he's talking to those believers. He says, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped at his hand, escaped his hands. He says, if I'm going to boast, I'm going to boast about my failures, my weaknesses. And later he says, I do this so that the power of Christ may be present in me. But this image here misses us. I didn't know what this meant until I studied it this past week or the week before this past week. Um, what Paul is doing, he is, he is parodying, he's sort of making fun of a common thing that was done. He's writing this letter to believers in the city of Corinth. It, like the city of Philippi, was a Roman colony, deeply proud of its Roman heritage. They wanted to, even though it wasn't in Rome, they wanted to be known as Roman citizens. And what Paul is doing throughout this whole passage, but especially in this one section, he is sort of make he is using a common Roman soldier's um, um, statement and turning it back on himself. Let me explain it this way. You know how in the United States, we, when someone has really done something brave on the battlefield, we might give to them the Medal of Honor? Isn't, uh, excuse me, I'm sorry, I'm having trouble. It's the highest military honor which can be given. In Rome, the highest military honor which could be given was called the Corona Muralis. Corona, or it was one of the highest, the Corona Muralis. And what the Corona Muralis meant was the crown 
of the wall. And it was a, a, a wreath, a chaplet, or a crown of gold indented and embattled given by the Romans to the soldier who first mounted a breach in storming a town. Okay, here's what's going on. In those days of fortified cities, you had these huge walls. And you've seen it on Lord of the Rings and other times. What do you do? You bring a huge ladder up to the wall, and you start running people up that wall. All right? It is insane. But because these are fortified cities and they have lots of uh, supplies inside of them, if you want to capture the city, you've got to get over it somehow unless you're just going to freeze them out over the course of months and years of time. So that's what you do. You, take all, you, just, you have the power of numbers. You set up all these things. You run up there, and it's a it's certain death sentence to go up that. But if you do it enough, sooner or later, someone will make it. And that guy was the first guy over the wall. First over the wall. Corona. Miralis, the crown of the wall. Now, of course, because there's so many dead people, and how do you know who's really first? You have to swear an oath before Caesar, as God is my witness, I will declare that I was the first man over the wall. And you'd be given a crown. In fact, contemporary crowns today still have that kind of look of a turret, you know, over the crown of the wall. So what the Apostle Paul is doing to these Roman people Roman, uh, Roman citizen people, so proud of their heritage, is saying, you know, everybody brags about their great accomplishment, but I want to brag about this. And as God is my witness, he says, if you remember the text, I, when King Aretas of Damascus tried to get me, I didn't go up the wall, I went down the wall. I didn't go there to capture, I went off to escape. I was a runaway fugitive, and I'm proud of it. He's parodying He's making fun of himself and their penchant for looking for people who had lots of glorious things. So the Apostle Paul is putting up that experience as an example of his weakness. He parodies this crown story with his own wall crown story. Rather than climbing up the wall to attack the enemy, he's climbing down the wall to escape the enemy. He means to accentuate his own failure, his own weakness, and then to elevate the strength of Christ. Only a few verses, he says, God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, that the power of Christ may rest on me. For the sake of Christ, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardship, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Often our failures are the best thing that ever happened to us because we realize how much we need to surrender everything of ourselves to God. And I know that failure in my own life has been so helpful to me. You know, there are times when I attempted to start church that just didn't work out and it was painful for me and embarrassing to me, but these are times when I learned how to rely on God's strength more. Well, the third thing that we see in Paul's experience is what I call solitude, an extended time with the person of Christ, an extended time with the person of Christ. The Apostle Paul, it says, and by the way, it's Galatians chapter 1, verses 13 to 15, 13 or so and following, where you get these times in there. I didn't have time to look it up for you, but you can look it up for yourself. That Saul was in Damascus about three years and in Arabia back and forth between those two places. And it was after 14 years that he went down later. And so the Apostle Paul had some intensive time, alone time. And if you want to uh, gain God's direction for your life, you need a time of solitude. Moses had it for 40 years in Midian. Joseph had it in the slavery uh, there. And often God uses times of solitude and waiting in order to season us for ministry 
like a good guitar or a fine wine, a bit of aging can do us a great deal of good. But it's not just waiting that helps us. We need to use the time to seek God as we wait. Saul's time on the shelf was put to good use for serious reflection and seeking after God. I've certainly found this to be true in my life. I, in preparation for this, I pulled out some old notebooks of my own journaling time with God, and I could feel again the angst in my heart as I began to say to the Lord, really? Do you really want me to move forward with this church? Is this really something you want me to do? You find that when you spend time alone. A lot of times our lives are just too busy. We're never alone. Time alone with God. And then the final thing that we see from the Apostle Paul, in addition to the other three, is friendship. Friendship. The Apostle Paul developed a deep connection with the body of Christ. He was very much dependent on the good graces of good friends. It was Ananias who came to him and called him brother Saul. It was also Barnabas who came to him in Jerusalem and encouraged him and later on sought him out in, Antioch, uh, uh, in Tarsus and brought him over to Antioch. It was the apostle. It was these people. You see, we will always go farther together than we will ever go alone. These four qualities really help us. We need, to, we need to experience the risen Christ. We need to experience even the strength of Christ in our failures. We need times of solitude for seeking Christ, and we need the encouragement of friends in Christ. I'm so grateful that God sees a big view of our lives, and He sees a big, big view for you. Some of you may think of yourself as a failure. You've lost the opportunity to become what God wants you to be. But trust me, God is not through with you yet. If you've not experienced the forgiving power of the presence of Jesus Christ, start there. And if you've experienced failure, don't feel stuck in your failure, but trust that God will move forward with you. And I believe that you will, like this church, feel the winds of God moving your life forward in His time for His purposes. Let's pray as we close. Jesus, we want to thank You. We want to thank You for never giving up on us for using even our failures as a means for growth. I pray that you would help each of us to become the kind of people that you can use. And if we've never experienced you personally in our lives, may we start there. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.